that mental skills aren't just for racing. Mental mm -hmm. skills are for understanding how to execute the training. Welcome to 80-20 Endurance, the podcast that's 80% gray matter and 20% empty space. Welcome. Thank you very much. I was excited to hear what you'd come up with, and I that I wasn't expecting. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always try to make it, you know, topical in some way, but like not not the absolute most predictable thing I could possibly come up with either. So you succeeded. It's a gift. Um but yeah, really delighted. I'm, I have to say, I've been an endurance sports enthusiast most of my life, but I've also have been fascinated by the human brain for a long time, mostly through the influence of my older brother, Josh, who actually started a PhD program in computational neuroscience at the University of Rochester back in the, in the 90s. Did not finish it, but like he would, he would tell me you know, stuff he was learning and, and give me like lay friendly books about brain science to read. So I felt like for a journalist, I was pretty early to the party and, and like talking about the, the role of yeah. the brain in endurance performance. So for, for all of these reasons, I'm stoked to have you as, as a guest. And I would like to ask you first, because I know, you know, you, you are a neuroscientist and you are so also like me are a, an endurance sports enthusiast. And I'm curious to know which interest came first for you. Yeah, it's a it's actually a great story. And I am from upstate New York, not too right far on. from where your brother went to school. And I have a very interesting trajectory. I'll keep it brief. I dropped out of high school and went to work for family uh, circumstances. My mother had a chronic neurological illness. So I was exposed to what can happen when the brain goes wrong from a very early age and grew up going to all these neurology appointments and everything. So I, I went to work at 16 and immediately enrolled in our local community college and started a running habit all at the same time. And it turned out that one of my professors was an avid distance runner. And you have to think this was like 1982. So there was a thriving little nucleus in many cities in upstate New York of distance runners. We had the Utica Boilermaker. That was mm -hmm. the big race in town, the big 15K. And that running grew in parallel with my devotion to academics. And it just so happened that the running role model I had was uh, finishing a PhD in psychology and turned me on to this new field called cognitive neuroscience, which was really the beginning of thinking about the brain as it relates to human behavior and taking advantage of new technology that would allow us to actually study the human brain in healthy individuals. Fast forward 30 something years and here we are in a very different time with respect to technology and of course uh, a bit far from my humble roots. Uh-huh. Yeah, quite the trajectory. When Matt and I were talking about you too, and we're going to throw in some facts, like I said, before the episode, but, you know, just a few schools you went to, pretty casual. You got Dartmouth, Harvard, Cornell on the list, yeah. so it didn't stop there. You know, I, I like to, I'll leave you with one thought, and I, I always, my kids know I ask people this, how long do you think it took 10 years to go from high school dropout to finishing the PhD at Cornell? So, 
a lot can happen in 10 years. And during that yeah. time, I really see my running habit, which also grew from being a brand new runner in a pair of basketball shorts, right? Trying to figure it out to, to getting into racing and running marathons and training high mileage. That all grew together in 10 years. And I really honestly don't think had I not developed that running habit that we'd be having the conversation that we're having today, because that really taught me how to devote myself to something and get up and do the work every day. And if you do that, amazing things can happen. Uh, you know, as I know from, from having the brother I have, the average lay person thinks, okay, neuroscience, it's like, it's one thing, but in fact, there's a lot of different paths you can take within that field. What, one of the reasons my brother dropped out of his program was that it was computational neuroscience. And it was sort of like based on the idea that our brains are computers. And my brother's like, no, they're not. <laughs> like, I, I'm in the wrong place. This is, they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're barking up the wrong tree here. So I, um, tell us a little bit about of the many different directions you could have gone within your, in your field. What, what was the one that you had the, the greatest fascination with? Yeah. So I had, as I mentioned earlier, this very personal and abiding interest in how the brain creates behavior in people. And at the time that I was doing my studies, the opportunities to really make that connection were kind of limited. You could study people who had brain injuries and neurological diseases, see how those affect behavior and, and make inferences. And that's the time tested model that we've been doing since the ancient Greeks. But while I was in graduate school, new technology was developed that allowed us to image brain activity, right? No longer could we only look at the anatomy of the brain, but we could start to look at the physiology, the activity of the brain when people were engaging in different tasks. And so that was an amazing thing. And that technology barely existed when I left graduate school in 1993, but it did become a thing in the 90s. And I sort of made a, a 180 direction in my career. I'd been studying vision in, in a truly behavioral terms went up to Dartmouth College and spent seven years just learning how to use magnetic resonance imaging or functional magnetic resonance imaging to study human brain activity. And then from there to the University of Oregon, where I ran a brain imaging center there and helped to uh, develop a program there, and then eventually to the University of Missouri. And now I'm out on my own. I've decided to take the last bit of my career jump off the high dive board and try to bring some of this science to people in the areas of interest that we share. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about that. On your website, I saw you have three different sections of people that you help or consult. And so how does what you've studied and studied for 10 years plus, how does that relate to endurance sports and, and what's your goal now being out on your own? Yeah, so I think when we think of the brain in sport, a lot of us think of things like baseball pitchers and hitters and so on, where we can really talk about the nuances of perception and, and predicting and the, the skill aspect of sport. But as you well know, there's a lot of skill involved in endurance sports as well. And I've competed in uh, a bunch of them over the years, not only running, but running surely is a skill. And there are mental skills that we can develop that we're going to help or hurt our running. And so one of the things I'm really interested in is looking at how we form habits and how we change habits and how we build skills. And one of the things that I would say about skills in particular is that they're hyper-specific. So when we look at motor learning in the lab, for example, 
there's very little transfer between one sort of motor learning skill and another, right? To give you a real world example, you know, it might be great to learn the motor skills to play chords on your piano, but that's not going to help you play chords on your guitar. Yes, if you're a musicianship and so on, sure, but I'm just talking about the motor skills. Typing is not going to help you be a better guitarist, whatever. A lot of our, our skills in learning are that way. They're hyper-specific. And so one of the things that I see a lot in sport is in thinking about the development of the mental performance side is not so much thinking about how to put that together in the field when people are actively training and when they're competing. It's treated more as something you do leading up to the event, right? Or you do separate when you're, when you're cooling down from your workout or in the evening or something. So one example would be to take this idea of the hyper-specificity of learning and the context dependency of learning and, and really develop ways of working on these mental skills in the time when people are actually performing, when they're training, when they're racing. And that's a big interest of mine. Cool. I was, I was going to save this question for later in the interview, but, but you teed it up. And this could be a dud because it's a hyper-specific question uh, and, 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 and situational, but I, 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 um, I can't help myself. So we're going to give this a try. So I'm, I'm speaking to you from Flagstaff, Arizona, where I've launched a new venture called Dream Run Camp. Uh, it's like a, a pro-style training camp for runners of all abilities. There's a woman here now with us named Lisa who suffered a nerve injury in her foot receiving anesthesia for a foot operation 10 years ago. Um, and has not been the same ever since. The, the cause was only recently diagnosed. Only recently did they figure out what actually, because she was thinking, oh, it must have been the surgery, but it was actually the anesthesia. So she still has some issues. And just today we were out doing a run. She can run, but she, she doesn't have full feeling in her foot. So as you can imagine, like running on a treadmill, is very hard for her. Going downstairs, up is fine. Going down, you know, because she just doesn't have great proprioception. And... And just today we were out doing a run and her husband happened to notice that her right foot, the affected foot, everts um, noticeably compared to the left foot. And according to Lisa, that was never the case before. And so I had a speculation. I thought what her, because you know, so much of the motor skills is completely unconscious, right? I mean, we, we couldn't, there's no way we could run if we had to think about every little nuance of it. So my thought was, What's going on is this was a sort of compensation that her nervous system found in search of proprioception. She was trying to find another part of her foot to run on where she could feel contact with the ground, which is good, you know, like it's, it's smart, but it has led to compensatory like imbalances and maybe it's part of the reason she can't perform. Like, what do you think of that theory? And if it, if it holds water, what do we, what do we do for Lisa? Well, <laughs> Let's, let's reel it back and I'll give you the esoteric sort of professorial answer. But look, proprioception is fascinating. We talk about it as the sixth sense, right? It is this thing that we're using all the time, but we're not aware of it until something goes wrong with it, right? And fortunately, that's rarely the case. I've worked with a lot of patients, however, that have peripheral nerve injuries like your running friend, right? So uh, we have all these, our body is innervated with these peripheral nerves, our joints, our muscle spindles, and they're constantly giving us feedback that allows us, our brain to figure out where our body is in space, right? So if you have damage to a nerve that is involved in that kind of proprioception, right, that's that sense of where am I in space, 
that's going to cause problems for coordinating movement. What you do with that information, that proprioceptive information, is not only you're not only using it as feedback, but we're, our brain is constantly using the information it has about our system right now to predict what our system will be like down the line. So I think your your theory is great, Matt. I think what what's happening is the compensation you're seeing in the the posture of the foot is a reflection of the brain predicting and adding in some margin for error, some compensation, right? And think about it. We all do that. You know, we all uh, come out we with a lot of bumps and bangs. Running happens to be one of these activities, right? In fact, I can't run anymore uh, due to deterioration of my meniscus. But running is one of these activities where we do pay the price in injuries, and and most of them come and go. But we've all been out there when we've had uh, a little bit of a, a plantar fasciitis, for example. And if you look at somebody running with plantar fasciitis on a video, a good physical therapist will know there's something wrong with their gait, right? And the next level of understanding that is to take it to the brain level and say, well, why is the brain choosing to compensate the movements in that way, right? That's a very interesting thing. And that has to do with the fact that you and I are taking in information through vision, proprioception, our sense of touch, tactile awareness. We feel it even through our running shoes when we're on trails, on pavement. We're compensating our gait all the time. You're right. That's running in the background all the time. We're compensating for soreness. We're compensating for stiffness. You begin your run in the morning. You're probably not as flexible as you're going to be later in the day or later in that run. The brain is is taking all of that information and using it to come up with a motor program, a, a movement plan. And it's not just happening in the moment, but it's planning ahead as well. Mm-hmm. We're constantly predicting what are what that feedback will look like in the future and refining those predictions based on the information we're bringing in. So I think it's a great theory and I think it's an example. It's a wonderful example. You kind of teed it up in a way <laughs> of um, why ha- why taking things even to that next level, not just looking and saying, OK, there, there's something wrong, the plantar fascia, the gate and so on. But the next level of thinking, what is the central command system up here doing to compensate Uh, that is really important for really getting a more comprehensive understanding of our performance. Right on. Fascinating. There you go. You can let Lisa know. There's hope. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but the the second part of your question is tough, right? What do we do for Lisa? That's very (laughs) hyper-specific, as you said. Um, But I think we build a team around an athlete that has experts in movement, that has have experts in training programs and monitoring recovery and that on the mental performance side, we have experts, but we also want to bring in this next level to inform that mental performance side, which is no longer treated like a black box because we actually are starting to understand brain mechanisms just in the, in the same way that uh, understanding muscle physiology informs performance brain science is going to inform how we approach mental performance. Well, to pivot a little bit, I mean, we're all here because of our love for endurance sports, but mental practices and habits like we were talking about earlier, what are some of the biggest things that endurance athletes can work on? Is it like 
controlling your pain intolerance or tolerance, I should say, um, being positive, like affirmations, like what are the biggest exercises mentally that we can do to improve as endurance athletes? Well, um, I'm going to approach your question a little differently. And uh, okay. <laughs> it, relate, it relates to the theme of your podcast, 80-20, right? There's a lot of interest right now in whatever label we'd like to give it, polarized training, right? The idea that the world's best endurance athletes across a multitude of different sports are spending the bulk of their time in a pretty low lactate status. They're building that aerobic engine because even short races are aerobic races, right? And that then we're laying on top of that some very focused quality, right? Very sports-specific focused quality. And, and I think that's interesting for a couple of reasons from my perspective. One is my perspective of having been a runner for, well, close to 40 years before I chose to stop and focus on cross-country ski racing and, and cycling, which are less impact sports. I've heard this before, right? Arthur Lydiard was talking about this, and he wrote my training Bible when I started out. It was the first running book I ever had about doing a lot of aerobic running. And then over time, we've seen these kind of trends in, in how we approach the sport come and go. Uh, if you look at the history of running with intervals and, and being the focus for a while and, and so on. It's super interesting to me. But from, from the brain science perspective, uh, one of the things that comes to mind right away, and one of the things we see the most common thing I hear coaches complain about is, my runners always want to go medium hard, right? Mm -hmm. Why is that? Well, it's really rewarding to go out there and run tempo pace. It's fun. It's hard. You come back feeling like you really did something, right? I love it too. And it's a real struggle across all the different sports I've done not to always want to go medium hard. And I'm running groups constantly, medium hard, so that you can't really put out the kind of efforts you need to hit that high register, right, um, on your hard days because you're kind of chronically tired. So that's a psychological thing. What do we do about that? Well, what is it? Why is it? And one of the things that can explain it is we have this, there's this phenomenon called temporal discounting, which means that we discount distant rewards, right? And there are great experiments. Behavioral economists have had done wonderful things like experiments where you say, you know, you can have $10 today mm -hmm. or you can have $17 Wednesday. Which do you want? And, you know, people take a lot of people will choose the $10 today. They tend to discount the value of rewards that are far away in time. But we also tend to discount the value of rewards that require more effort to attain. And a lot of times those two go hand in hand, like when you've got a race coming up in nine months, it's far away and it's going to take a lot of work to probably achieve your goal. So what do we do? Well, we default to the $10 today and the $10 today for us, we running types is to go out and run tempo and get that big hit of the feel good stuff that, that we all enjoy so much, right? But it's counterproductive if you do that too much for the long haul. And so I'm a big fan of mechanism. I'm a big fan of the belief that when people understand why they're doing something, they're much more likely to stick to it. So with the athletes I work with, we talk about really esoteric things, really heady things like 
hey, look, there's this cognitive bias called temporal discounting, and it's trying to subvert you all the time. That's why when I look at what you did last week, I see that you went too hard on three of the days when you should have been going easy, right? So now let me explain to you why this is, and let me explain that it's not just you uh, being a goof off or, or not listening to the wisdom of your coach, but it's, this is what's going on. So now that you have that in your back pocket, you're an educated athlete, and you're in a much more powerful position to then modify that behavior, right? So I know that that's, you might have wanted something really specific, like repeat this mantra in your head. And I could do that for you. I could, give, I could have you write something on your back of your hand, but it might be slow down, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was a perfect info, Marshall. So we'll just copy and paste that around on the web for an okay, ad for well, 20. <laughs> all right. Well, yeah. well, you know, it's how I train and it's how cross country skiers have trained forever and continue to train. It's very effective and it's very effective in, in cycling as well, in rowing. The data is super in, in terms of supporting that. I've had nice conversations with Steven Seiler about mm-hmm. uh, what are the mental skills that you need to be successful with that program? And they are different than the mental skills that you need to do a a hardcore periodized uh, interval based program. Mm -hmm. And so it's very important that the mental skills that we're developing are hyper specific to the type of training and competition that we do. It's easy to think about the mental skills for, you know, somebody running the 100 on the track or different from somebody running the 5000. We all understand that. But what what we haven't thought about perhaps enough is what are the mental skills for the training, right? And so the example we're talking about now is about complying with a training program that really requires athletes to buy into a a long, gradual build that's going to give them that kind of base that's going to be very enduring. And it may take years to build, right? And and, many years to build. But that's a different mental skill set than it is to do a different type of training. And I think that's where we need to be focusing our attention. That mental skills aren't just for racing. Mental Mm -hmm. skills are for understanding how to execute the training plan. Do you think that's something you're born with? Really great endurance athletes, are they born with these skills to endure that training? Or is that something that they learn over time? Interesting. So the trouble is that we only know these great endurance athletes after they've become great endurance athletes. So the experiments (laughs) confound it. All right. But with that caveat, right, with that caveat, Hannah, um, I spent a summer running with Henry Rono and Matt will know who Henry Rono is. Henry Rono broke three world records on the track in a span of like 80 something days. And there are these legendary battles in college collegiate running with Henry Rono running for Washington State and Alberto Salazar running for University of Oregon, where I used to work. Henry Rono came and spent time in upstate New York when he got in his mind in his 30s that he was going to try to break the uh, marathon world record. And he was overweight and he was very far from being the live athlete that he had, had been in his peak of his career. But I got to run with him, as did my other buddies. And we were all in the kind of triple digit week, mileage week uh, crowd, which is very popular, actually, in in the 1980s. And one of the things that I got to see was what real talent looks like. And it was like something I didn't understand, because (laughs) what I observed in Henry was not only the mentality to push himself to 
unbelievable extremes in training, mostly slow. He would yell at us too fast, but he would go on these 16 mile morning runs in a tracksuit in upstate New York in July. Mm -hmm. And then in another run in the afternoon, sometimes a, an interval session in, in the middle of the day, 170 miles a week. We broke down. We were all burned out, broken down train wrecks, but his body had the gift of adaptation. And I think that when the final chapter is written on these really successful endurance athletes, a big part of it is going to be the recovery ability. So did they know how to train? I, I really can't speak to that. I'm sure they had many, like Henry had many coaches over the years who probably had him doing all sorts of crazy stuff. He certainly had an incredible gift for speed, but he had an incredible gift that went along with that, that was just as rare in terms of his ability to recover from work. Got it. And, a, and the mind, all in one package. That's, mm -hmm. what the, that's what the super athlete is, right? They've got it mm -hmm. all going on. But most of us don't have that. But I do believe that most of us are nowhere near our capacity in any of those domains. Just last evening, we had our debut episode of Live from Dream Run Camp, which is where we bring in a local professional runner or other you know, eminent running-related person who's here in Flagstaff or passing through. And our guest was Lauren Hagens, a member of the NAC Elite team. And one of the things that is interesting about her, she started off as like an 800 meter specialist in, in college. And now she's, she's training for her first marathon, uh, having mm. run a couple of very successful half marathons. And yet you know, she's always been a low mileage runner. She said she had just completed her highest mileage week ever. And it was 80, 85 miles. And, you know, me, you know, Joe, Joe amateur, I've, I've done more than that. And in explaining it, she said she's just aware that she can't tolerate as much mileage as others. But I think what stuck with me was like, she said in this environment, it's not that easy to do what works best for you because you're surrounded by these people who are doing so much more, but she's able to do it. And to the recreational runners like myself who were in the room listening, I'm like, are you, are you hearing her? She is self-regulating here. She said it's hard to do, but she's doing it. And and so many amateur runners, I think part of the reason we're not at our full capacity is that what the Lauren Hagens of the world are able to do, not easily, but they do it, it's just they have like a kind of inhibitory control that, that a lot of us lack. Um, and it seems decisive about getting to that final level, that, 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 that you know, peak level of the sport. Well, Matt, one of the things that immediately jumps to mind when you were describing Lauren is that there's no piece of technology that is responsible for what she's doing, right? right. It's yeah. not that her, her whoop band told her right. that you know <laughs> she's got to do this or her heart rate variability or... And look, I, I'm, I'm goofing a little bit, but I think a very big thing that I see going on right now in, in it, it was intense in cycling, but now it's becoming more... It's, moving more into running is that we're relying more and more on technology to basically try to inform our training, which is a great thing. Look, we portable lactate meters, this, this is amazing stuff. And I, I truly believe it, it is, is vital. And at the pro level, it's probably essential, but it's never going to replace the, the uh, self-knowledge and subjective uh, insight of really knowing when you're ready to go and when you're not. And it sounds like Lauren's a great example of that, right? 
get, and this is more psychology than neuroscience, being able to be honest with yourself is one of the hardest things for all of us, yes. right? I mean, yeah. I would probably still be running if I had been a little more honest <laughs> with myself about my knee. But I think a good coach and a good mental performance coach can help an athlete develop some of those skills. And what's great about skills like the one you mentioned, right, is kind of about setting boundaries and respecting those and having other people respect those. Those are great life skills, right? You want to bring those into the rest of life as well. And for most of us, we're doing this sport because we enjoy it, but it has such potential to enrich the rest of our life and make us better people. Mm -hmm. I really believe that. It's done that for me. And so there's no piece of technology that's going to do that, though. That, But those things can be developed, and sometimes they need some guidance and input from experienced people, either fellow runners or coaches or, or other specialists. But yeah, great. Sounds like a good role model to me. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Stamp of approval from Scott. <laughs> yeah, I'm giving it. <laughs> I wanted to share a little story because I listened to a podcast that you were on where you talked about pain a lot. And I was a swimmer my whole life. And I remember this specific moment with a coach that I had from when I basically started swimming until I went to college and swam there. And I remember it was kind of on like the beginning of when I was starting to plateau around puberty. And she told me that there was a distinct shift that she saw in my racing, which was I was clearly now afraid of pain because I know what it feels like. And I'd hit this point that, you know, it's going to hurt and you're be, you're letting it take hold of you and you're, you're scared of it before you race every single time. I know Matt has had a similar past with running as well, but I guess my question is I was a mid mid distance swimmer and now I'm, doing a bit longer distances running in triathlon, but I'm sorry, I'm enjoying it a lot more than I did that middle distance. And I'm just wondering if I enjoy that type of pain more <laughs> because it is different. It's, you know, it's yeah. and on the podcast that you were on, I think they described it as like sprinting is just getting like punched in the face. Middle distance is getting thrown into a paper sack and like punched around <laughs> a little bit. And then long distance is like, just hurting for a while, you know, it's yeah. just this having your hair pulled pain. for half an hour yes. or something, yes. right? Yeah, that's what it was. Right. Um, and so I'm wondering, how do you kind of experiment with those different, the different sources of pain, I suppose, and find your niche? Yeah. And then, you know, how do you practice becoming better at being in those blocks of pain? Yeah. I think it's something that anyone who's training, as opposed to just, you know, I think there's a difference between exercising and training. And I think we move through those phases at different parts of our year and different parts of our lives. But training, you're going to experience all of those if you're doing endurance sports, right? Because you're mm -hmm. going to go do some work on the track that's going to have that searing kind of punched in the face sort of feeling to it, at least part, partly, right? And, but a lot of the racing is kind of riding that, that edge, right? Right to the end, which is really sustained in, in having to be able to tolerate that, that kind of effort. And I think it's something that we all should be practicing in our training. If you're following a training plan, you're definitely getting doses of that. And I do think it's an acquired skill. I like to talk with athletes again about what are the mechanisms of that? What is pain, right? Well, pain is a perception, just like the perception of this I'm having of the sound of your voice, right? It's a perception. 
we have this misunderstanding about pain and pain researchers will tell you, we think pain is about tissue damage. Well, it's not about tissue damage. Pain is about protection. Pain is about warding off tissue damage and protecting you from damaging your body, right? So pain is in, in often a predictive thing. It's, that it's meant to hold you back, to slow you down. And in everyday life, that's a great thing a lot of the time, right? But we're involved in these activities where getting the best out of ourselves is going to require dipping over that edge and, and, and experiencing that pain in learning how to manage that, right? I had a friend who is a, a very good swimmer like you, and I was working on swimming. It was the, the weakest leg of me when I was a triathlete in the 90s. And I remember saying to Peter, Peter, does it, does it get less painful? And he said, no, but you go faster. <laughs> so uh, you get more out of your pain, right? You get, you get to move mm -hmm. through the water quicker, but it's still going to hurt a lot. So I think that understanding, first off, that pain is there. It's, it's a good thing. It's there to protect you. Learning how to differentiate between pain that is going to stop when you stop, which is the kind of pain, good pain, I would say, versus pain that is injury pain is vitally important, right? And practicing getting comfortable with pain. And, and by that, you can, you know, this is great to do during track sessions where don't just be focusing on your time and don't be trying to ignore necessarily those bodily experiences, but start to, to really pay attention to that and realize that, hey, look, I can cope with that. I can handle it and, and maybe dial it up a little more from there. I think we can all learn to tolerate more of it because rarely are we truly putting ourselves at, at grave risk. Mm-hmm. We talk, you know, physiologists uh, like Tim Noakes have talked about the central governor, the idea that what really slows us down is the brain, right? The cent central control unit saying you're getting too close to the edge. You don't have enough reserves. Well, we know there are things you can do to, to learn to recalibrate that central governor or know there are ways you can trick the central governor and get more performance out of it. And so, yeah, I think educate educating oneself about pain is the first step toward learning to deal with it better. Mm -hmm. Is that helpful? Is that going to make you go further and harder in your <laughs> next workout? Probably. Well, my follow-up question was going to be, why does it, and you mentioned, you guys talked about this a little bit in that podcast as well, but why does it feel, it's still painful, but why does it feel better when you are having a great race than when you're not. And maybe you're yeah. probably in shape for both of them, right? Yeah. Is that how can you take being in a position in a race where it's not going well, but you're, you know, you're in shape. It's nothing about that. And like, what can you hone in on or what are, what are the skills that you can practice to try and change that around? Because mm -hmm. you're still in pain when you're yeah. getting a PR, it's not an easy thing to do, you know? So, um, yeah. I guess, how do you get more into that mental space where it's a fun thing than yeah. just going well, down, 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 down? <laughs> yeah. So um, one thing to know about pain, and this comes not out of the sports world at all, but out of the pain research world, there's a huge world out there that studies pain. Pain is contextual, right? The amount of pain that you experience in, in a given situation, like I use this example because it's easy to do in the lab, we can make a water bath full of ice and we can have you put your hand in it. And at some point it goes from being cold to being painful. That transition is when different sensory receptors 
not thermal receptors now, but part of your nociceptive system, your pain system kick in, right? It goes over a threshold. Now the brain is registering the sensation, not just as cold, but as pain, right? You can show that people's experience of that, and we can measure the water and say it's exact these degrees, is different depending on what their context they perceive they're in. If they perceive they're in a safe context, if they perceive they're, if they're under stress, if they're sleep deprived, they're not going to be able to tolerate that as well as if they're in a place where they feel safe, everything's fine, everything's under control. And I think the more that we can start to cultivate that feeling when we're pushing in those kind of extreme circumstances, everything's fine. I've been here before. I'm safe, right? We know from the lab, you can tolerate more pain. And it makes sense to me that you would be able to do this out in the real world as well. We also know that you can prime your ability to tolerate pain to some degree. So one of the things that I learned when I moved into more serious bike racing was that I always warmed up as a runner, but I did it in this kind of casual, half-assed way uh, a lot of the time. You know, I'd, I'd do a, some long, easy stuff. I'd build my heart rate up. I'd do a few strides, and that was it. Cyclists, at a high level, for something like a time trial or an event where they know they have to go really hard, they have very structured ways of approaching that that involve taking some doses of pain before the event. Now, they don't frame it that way. They think about it in terms of, oh, I'm warming up the muscles and getting the heart going. You're doing that, but you're also showing your brain, this is what it's going to feel like. Remember this because you're about to experience it more. And I actually think that that, that is an important thing. And I've been mm -hmm. uh, using that in my own bike racing as well, right? To For time trials and things where it's going to hurt. Keep, making sure that you hurt a little in that warm-up and not being afraid about that. Because if the first time you hurt that day is in, in the race, I find that really hard personally. And I think a lot of athletes do. Yeah. That's really interesting because we did the same thing in swimming. We would do some sprints from the block before a race. And just in my head, I remember being in those warm-ups and saying, and like doing a check-in with myself of how am I feeling today? It was not really saying this is the pain I'm going to feel, but it was like, okay, this is, you know, race simulation. How good do I feel today or not? Yeah, I think in physiology and exercise science, a lot of the great insights that people have in the lab, they realize, oh, there are coaches who've already kind of figured this out through trial <laughs> and error. And I think, you know, some of those warm-up strategies that swimmers do. It's interesting having competed in it, reasonably high levels in running and triathlon more so at, and, and cross-country skiing and now cycling to see the different cultures, right, around how to approach competition and training and so on. This business about 80-20 cuts across all of them in terms of training, but there are things like the, how to approach a warm-up that are very, very different and that I think there's wisdom in all of those areas that can be brought to bear in these different sports that and I think getting some doses of that pain up front, even before something like a marathon, it is worthwhile. Yeah, that notion of the contextuality of pain makes a lot of sense to me because, you know, I, I transformed from the most pain averse runner I knew to the least, <laughs> you know, over a period of time. And it was really entirely about, re, I guess, recontextualizing pain. I made pain the goal. I went from thinking of, a, of something I, I had to deal with 
in order to achieve my goal to the goal it itself. I wanted to be good at pain and it was absolutely difference making for me. Again, like not like snap your fingers and it's all better, but that that certainly worked for me. Well, I read a quote. <laughs> I, there's a quote. I, I have an odd memory. There's a quote of yours that I read in a book of yours probably 20 years ago. And it's something like this. It said something like, pain is the point. I go to bed thinking about running fast, right? And I and that's that's what I think about. So when I'm when I'm in pain, when I'm doing the hard workout, I'm thinking this is where I want to be. This right. is this is what this is yeah. about. I, I can't. I'm I'm yeah. kind of ruining your quote. Um, it's always dangerous <laughs> to to tell someone what their quote was. But do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. No. That specific line is I I create and collect mantras, and, and the, this is where you want to be is one of the. The ones I would pull out when I was really in the hurt box in a race, yeah. you know, cause you start to, you know, get in this place where like you're, you're actually reject, you're turning pain into suffering. Um, yeah. where you, you know, right. you, you can't, you can't do anything about the underlying perceptions, but there's also this affective level where it's the distinction I make is there's how you feel and how you feel about how you feel. And you have a lot of control over the second one. And, and for me, yes, that, that mantra, remember, you wanted this. Like you signed up, you did the training, you paid money. Like your goal still matters to you. Because there's that moment when you find yourself starting to reject the pain. And, and just that reminder, no, you chose this. Like, you know, this, this is, this is it, and it's true. You can't lie to yourself. That's the thing. Lying to yourself isn't going to work. You have to tell yourself Never. true things. And, and it was true. I, I did want to be there. The pain was painful. Um, but it's cool. Like the stuff, it's not just talk. The stuff can make a difference. Yeah. I've used that in my own training and racing. So thank you for the mantra. I, so there, Hannah, there's a mantra for you too. Uh, Matt <laughs> has it. You, you just have to get him to write it on your hand. Um, the other thing just quickly, Matt, is your intuition's great because we know that there are two systems in the brain involved in the, the experience of pain. And one is this, uh, affective, emotional, it's tied into the emotional networks of the yeah. brain. And the other is the one we've been talking about, which is the more sensory, no susceptive one, right? The two of those together, what creates your experience, you don't have control over the no susceptors, but you do have control over the emotions that you associate with the pain. Right. So your, your wisdom has physiology behind it. Good. Matt, do we want to get into, um, get into pacing at all? I know that was something you want to talk about. I think we'll, 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 we'll save it for the, because I'm looking at my list here, I'm like, we could go on for days. Um, like I said, I wasn't, I wasn't just blowing smoke when I said, like, if I get an opportunity to interview a brain science, like it's on. But uh, we'll have to have you back. Of the questions unasked on my list, uh, like I have one that I just will, I'll, I'll be very sad if I don't, if I don't ask. Um, Let her rip. Yeah. So um, this one's a little bit forward looking, and it's a, and it's kind of uh, full circle in in the context of the conversation we just had. So you talked about this revolution in uh, brain imaging technology, like ways of opening up the black box and looking inside. My understanding is that the, there's still a ways to go in terms of like being able to see what the brain is doing during exercise, during sports performance, and particularly in situ, you know, like when athletes are in the field doing their thing. Is there hope for like technology reaching a level, I mean, because I would think there would just be a Pandora's box. We would just learn so much and, and perhaps stuff that could be very impactful in terms of how athletes train, technologies perhaps that could leverage what we learn about the brain. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough problem. And so in the world that I did a lot of my research in, which was trying to think about um, how to improve rehabilitation for people with neurological injury and disease, uh, we are interested in how could we measure brain activity in a good in a, in a context where people were walking, for example, on a treadmill, right? Or something of this sort. It's a big problem because the technologies that we have uh, either require people to be perfectly still yeah. or um, have this sort of lack of portability. The, the Probably the most portable one we have is, is an old technology measuring brainwaves, EEG, electroencephalography mm-hmm. with little electrodes. But the problem is it's very hard to stabilize them on the head during any movement at all, right? Mm-hmm. So in the lab, you have people locked into a thing that holds their head. There are some people now who are getting fairly good data with some very careful treadmill walking, maybe some cycling on an ergometer. But uh, I don't think anytime soon that we're going to see anything we can really trust that's going to be deployed in the field. It's not going to become the next lactate test Uh portable. So anytime soon. Yeah. Well, this is just another reason for me to live another 50 years, I guess. (laughs) Mystery is a good thing too, right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, good point. <laughs> There's a lot of mystery still, right? A and, lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah may, oh, so, um, you know, I'm kind of leaving uh, to, to work on the more applied side of this, but I'm leaving in a science that has just blossomed during the time that I was in there. But at the same time, uh, there's far more that we don't know than we, what we do know. We're still in that position of trying to figure out what even the questions are in many cases. We do not have a grand theory of how the brain works. Mm-hmm. So there's a long way to go. Yeah. Just curious, This maybe you could consider my super deep closing question if you want it to be. Um, but knowing how endurance sports has affected you, how important it has been in your life, is that something that you will force your kids to do? Maybe not endurance sports Uh, specifically, but athletics. And what do you think parents in general should do? Okay. Two-part question. One part, the experiment's already been run. I have a (laughs) 23-year-old son who's a wonderful photographer and is not sharing my passion for endurance sports. And I have a a 20, soon to be 21-year-old daughter who's a very avid soccer player. And occasionally I see her running. They both ran as kids they both swam as kids, but it was with a very light touch. I wanted them to find what was best for them, but I exposed them to everything I loved as well. It'll be interesting to see. Sometimes these things come back around. As far as parents go, you know, I think that I think it's a tough time to be a kid. I think there's a lot of pressure on young people to make big decisions about what they're going to do with their lives at very young ages. Um, I had the luxury and I had the advantage and disadvantage, right? I was sort of free to roam and figure it out. There was no safety net. It was kind of extreme in that way. But I also didn't feel the pressure that a lot of young people do now to, if they don't get the perfect score, to they're not going to get into the right university. And if they don't get in the right university, and I've taught a lot of those kids who were really grappling with those difficulties, and then what's next in graduate school and all this stuff. And I think. I think sometimes parents, it's good to let your kids find their own way, right? And that their way might not be your way. And so what I've found is that it's really been educational for me letting that play out and getting my kids have taught me things. Like I didn't know anything about soccer until my daughter became into soccer, right? I didn't know anything about photography until my amazing son started teaching me. Like this is interesting stuff. So 
you, your kids can be your teachers too. And I think it's good to have a light touch. Great. That's a great advice. I think that was super deep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll chalk that one up to my super deep question then. <laughs> think about it this way in the very best of scenarios, what we're in, what we're passionate about here, running endurance sports in general, have a lot of power to make the world a better place. I really believe mm -hmm. that they have a lot of power to teach people that they can do things they didn't think they could. And I've seen it in my own life and I've seen it in other people's lives, how that's really opened up incredible sense of confidence and willingness to take risks and so on. And whatever way we find to share that with other people, whether it's through sport or other ways is what we want to be doing as parents, I think. Yeah. True. I guess it's just easy because we all share the same <laughs> passion oh, yeah. here. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Scott. Uh, maybe we'll have to circle back and have you back on so Matt can get to the bottom half of his list of <laughs> questions. <laughs> Wonderful. It's been a pleasure. It's nice to meet you and thank you for the opportunity. For sure. Thank you, Scott. As we wrap up this insightful episode with Scott Fry, connect with us on Instagram at 8020endurance for the latest updates, and please take a quick moment to rate and review our show on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback fuels our passion for bringing you the best content. And don't keep this episode's wisdom to yourself. Share it with your fellow athletes, friends, and anyone looking to elevate their endurance game. I've got my jam for the week for you. It's Chemical by Post Malone a good end of summer fun poppy jam so find that also on the playlist linked in our show notes until next week keep chasing your endurance dreams chat soon mm -hmm.